Welcome back to the Oscar Project Podcast, the show where I discuss Oscar-nominated films year by year. I'm your host, Jonathan Eaterberg, and today I'm bringing you an author interview with Nat Segalov, author of the forthcoming book, Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface. Before I jump into the interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show in your podcast player so you can get all the newest episodes as soon as they are released. If you like the interview and want to hear more, please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Nat Segalov is a writer, broadcaster, teacher, film historian, and raconteur with a varied background in motion picture publicity, journalism, producing, and covering up other people's mistakes. Having begun his career during the exciting transition between the old studios and the film generation of the new Hollywood, he provides both perspective and commentary on a wide range of subjects, many of them having to do with movies. He joins me today to talk about his upcoming book, Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface. Nat, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Now, when you set out to write this book, how did you go about tackling a topic like Scarface that has been written and talked about so much over the years? Well, it's nice to know that my book is being thought of as redundant. Um, it's a funny thing. The movie hasn't gone away. I mean, it, it was never there to begin with, but then it climbed and it, it has not diminished in popularity. And so I wanted to write about it as a continuing phenomenon. The 35th anniversary five years ago, did a lot of celebration, there were new DVDs out, a lot of interviews. Uh, but my book is the one that I think puts everything together and goes a bit further than any other coverage has done. Excellent. And now when I first picked up the book, I was a little bit surprised by the subtitle about a century of Scarface, but I really like how you covered the original novel by Armitage Trail, the 1932 film version, and the one that most people know, the 1983 Pacino version. What is it that stood out most about the first century of Scarface and how has it informed our culture? When Scarface was made in 1932 by Howard Hawks and produced by Howard Hughes, it was pre-code, and that is before Hollywood started clamping down on the uh, freedom of movies. There was a an informal production code, but it was before the 1934 debut of the seal, where you had to get a production code seal in order to have your film released. And the, 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 the Hayes office, gave Howard Hughes and Howard Hawks such a runaround with that film mm -hmm. that it's amazing they ever got the movie made. And that fascinated me because, you know, censorship has always been a problem in our society, uh, but they only censor certain things. You know, they only censor sex. They don't censor violence, sometimes not even language. So that was the fascination I had for the first film. And considering that it's been almost a century since that was made, to have the second film come along that simply took the impetus of the first one and took everything to the limit, Brian De Palma's 1983 remake, I was fascinated with the idea that we've come a long way, and yet we really haven't, because we're still worried about the same things infecting our society. Now, I had never seen the 1932 film, but I did find a copy I was able to watch the other day, and I was struck how similar they, they were to the 1983 version in, in many aspects. Obviously, the type of the story is a little bit different. You know, we have booze in one and, and cocaine in the other, but they, a lot of, they share a lot of similarities. How do you think, you mentioned the production code that they got a lot of runaround with that. How do you think the original could have taken even more chances if it hadn't been hamstrung by some of those uh, things about the production code at that time? It's funny, a lot of people who bemoan Hollywood censorship in the old days are actually also saying how much more inventive the filmmakers had to be to get around the production code. There was much more subtlety, which of course had been perfected in silent films. And Howard Hawks, I think, used a lot of suggestion in his 1932 version that you can be more explicit with in the 1983 version. The most prominent, of course, is uh, that 
Tony Camanti, who's played by Paul Muti in the first film, uh, has the hots for his sister. I mean, he really does have the hots for his sister. Uh, it's sort of based on the Medici's, if you will. But mm -hmm. incest was frowned upon in those days. But now, when you've got Al Pacino and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, where she actually offers herself to him with the F word in the final showdown of the 1983 Scarface, that's how far we've come. And you know, I'm almost romantic, and I think that these things should be only implied, although it certainly works, I think, to advantage in the 83 version. And there are all sorts of efforts that Hughes made uh, and had to reshoot to make it a much more moral ending. In the original version of Scarface, when Paul Muni as uh, Tony Camanti is surrounded by the police at the end, he shoots a policeman in the face and runs out to be gunned down. You couldn't do that in the 1932 Hollywood, so they now have him collapse as a coward and be carried out that way. So they had to make certain compromises in the character. And the ending of the film doesn't really justify the character at the beginning, but you're brought along so swiftly by Howard Fox's expert direction that you don't really notice it until you're on the way home. Yep, absolutely. And watching both versions of the film, I was struck by how over the top both Muni and Pacino are in that lead role. What do you think it is about these portrayals in particular that people across so many backgrounds and different cultures have gravitated to over the years? Audiences like flamboyant characters. And I think the characterization of Tony Camanti by Paul Muni and Tony Montana by Al Pacino are those kind of characters. They also, you know, kind of go back to something. I think this is in John Milius's film, Dillinger, where Dillinger, who was also over the top, says to the audience, in a sense, you do what I do if you had the guts. We identify with the Muni and the Pacino Tonys because we would really love to do that. In fact, that's why Al Pacino made the movie. He walked into, I think, the Tiffany Theater here in Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard and saw a revival of the 1932 Scarface. And he came out saying, I want to be Paul Muni. And that's what started the whole 1983 remake of Scarface in the process. And of course, if he wants to be Paul Muni in that movie, the only way he can do it legally is to do it in a movie like he did. Right. You really can't go around shooting people with alacrity. Exactly. Now, you mentioned a few times in the book about the connection between Hollywood and the mob or gangster culture. And obviously, we've seen these stories at theaters again and again throughout the history of film. What is it about those gangster movies? Again, is it that people want to see those things that they can't necessarily get away with in real life on the screen? Well, gangster movies are certainly, you know, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. In fact, Warner Brothers in that period was known for making films ripped from the morning headlines. That's why they made the best gangster films, you know. Public Enemy and Little Caesar and Angels with Dirty Faces and these great, great gangster films. Ending, of course, in 1967 with Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, that's a great legacy there. Uh, you can tell the good guys from the bad guys a lot easier in gangster films. But there's also something about a secret society that I think fascinated the public. This, of course, came to fruition in the Godfather films. But even back then, there's a certain code among the criminals that seems to be attractive to people. And also, let's face it, Hollywood but not that far from the mob themselves, whether it was certain people of the Thomas Edison Patents Trust in the East hiring mobsters to go out and beat up and shoot, ruin the cameras of the independents who didn't join the cartel as they moved out west to Hollywood, or some of the connections that the moguls apparently had with mobsters. I mean, Harry Cohn, who was the head of Columbia Pictures, almost took out a contract on Sammy Davis Jr. when Sammy was dating one of Harry Cohn's most important starlets, uh, Kim Novak, that was quashed because <laughs> the mob informed Harry Cohn that Sammy Davis Jr. was worth more to them in Las Vegas than Harry Cohn was in Hollywood. 
But these are the things that the moguls would do. In fact, there was even a case, and I, I go into it in, in the book about essentially the Scarface, about how the, the mob began infiltrating Hollywood in 1937, and the moguls went along with it because they didn't want a union problem. And gee, we have so many strikes going on today. Uh, I guess the moguls haven't changed that much. Right, yep, so, some things never change. Now, you talk a bit near the end of the book uh, about recent potential remakes or reboots of the Scarface story, but none of them have quite gotten off the ground. If it was up to you to cast a new film version of the story, who would you put in the lead role and some of the other roles, and where might you set this new version of the film? Well, I hate to cost the question, but I wouldn't do it. Tony's <laughs> dead at the end of the film, in case anybody's noticed, and else we're talking about a resurrection. It's not going to happen. The video game, which was made on Scarface's account, is, is calculated that Tony... Uh, healed from his wounds, which I don't think is realistic, and goes back after everybody who was responsible for offering him in the first place. But there really isn't anything to do. I, I talked a bit with uh, Stephen uh, Bauer, who plays Tony's best friend in the film, and he wrote the foreword to uh, essentially Scarface. Well, what if um, Stephen Bauer, uh, spoiler alert, had impregnated Tony's sister, and there was a son along the way. And then we said, oh, wait a minute, she's killed. So that couldn't happen. Yeah. So it, it can't logically happen that there's a sequel. And I don't think they're going to remake Scarface anytime soon. So these are wonderful fantasies. Right. Now, you had a few things listed in the references at the end of the book, but were there any specific books or articles that you used in writing the book that people should check out if they enjoyed your book and want to learn even more about Scarface? Well, Ken Tucker wrote a wonderful book called Scarface Nation, which is uh, a, a terrific analysis of the sociology of Scarface and about the film. Um, there are a couple of others. There's one which is absolutely dead awful, which I'm not talking about. There have been some books written about Scarface, again, over the years. And it's, I think, it, it empowering and enlightening to know that it's such a popular film and there's so much you can write about it. You know, critics are utilitarian. They, they tend to like films that they can write about easily, which is why movies that are incredibly visual and to tell their stories with visuals and not with words are harder for critics to write about because they're word people. And I think Scarface kind of bridges that gap. It's both visual through Brian De Palma's elegant direction and his camera style of John Alonzo. And of course, it has a lot in the story to write about. And I think that's why critics critics like it. But uh, I, I tended not to look at any of the books or any of the articles that were written about it until I'd done my first draft. And then I went through some of them likely to see if I made any big mistakes. And fortunately, I only made one or two and I corrected them. So other people have done wonderful jobs. I wanted to do my job first and then see if I blew it. Makes sense. Now, I have a couple of questions not specifically related to the book, but before I move on to those, is there anything else you want to touch on about the book that we haven't talked about yet? Well, this is very crash of me, but it's being released by Kensington Citizen Press on October 24th. It's going to be available on Amazon and every place good books are sold. It is called Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface. And I, I really hope it sells some copies because I have a dog to feed. <laughs> Let's yep, move well, on, Jonathan. <laughs> be sure to, to put a link in there where people can put it, pick it up and uh, pre-order and, and get it. If they're listening after the authority come out, they can order it there as well. Thank you. Now, this might be the hardest question I ask of the day. You've obviously watched a lot of films throughout your career, but if you had to pick your top three, what would they be? This is one of those questions that critics always ramble about, and I'm going to ramble as well as them. They change because art is not just what the artist creates, but how the person who experiences the art receives it. It's easy to say that Citizen Kane is my favorite film, 
because there's such a wealth of material in there. But I also things like Bringing Up Baby and uh, His Girl Friday. And I, I love the Howard Hawks comedies. I, I love Billy Wilder. Uh, Some Like It Hot is a terrific comedy, but I think his, his underviewed masterpiece, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, is as rich as anything he's ever done. So it, it really changes. It's sort of like, what food do you want? You couldn't exist on one flavor of food or even three flavors of food. You'd want to get a fourth and a tenth in there. And I'm the same way with movies. For sure. And if you could invite any three movie characters to your next dinner party, who would they be and why would you invite those folks? You had sent me that question in advance, and I, I was trying to think of, of parsing them into, well, could they be characters based on real people? And why would I want the characters instead of the real people? Or must <laughs> they be fictional characters? You know, something that somebody is totally made up for the movie and not based on a fictional character in some other medium. I I tend to be more of a realist. I would I would love to have dinner with uh I'm not going to give you names with a lot of people, but this is one of those questions I find rather fatuous. Sounds good. And do you have any books you would recommend that you've read recently? They could be fiction or nonfiction and don't necessarily have to be about movies in any way. That's funny. I've been writing so many books of my own other than research. I haven't had the chance to uh, to talk about many others. And I should have a whole stack of them here. Um, I recently got a whole series of books sent to me by Mike Blatty. Michael is the son of William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. Mike sent me a number of, of Bill's earlier books. Um, as you, some of your uh, pod listeners may know, I, I wrote the book about the exorcist, uh, the exorcist legacy, and I was able to uh, recall a lot of interviews I'd had with William Peter Blatty. And so Mike sent me some of the copies of his books I hadn't had, things like Which Way to Mecca Jack, which was his first comic novel. Uh, Tell Them I Remember You is a wonderful memoir that Blatty wrote about his mother, and it's so, so beautifully written and funny and harrowing at the same time. And then there's a piece of fluff that he wrote called John Gold, John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. It was made into a movie, but the book is a lot more expansive. And he's, I, I like writers who have a particular style. These are books I've read lately. Now, if you want to go back to the greats, you know, Faulkner and Twain and people like that. But these are books that I've, I've looked at now because they are not anything that I was writing. And I like the chance to blow it off. And there's also one which nobody will have heard of by an old buddy of mine who is sadly no longer with us. Um, it's called In Defense of Elitism by William A. Henry III. It's a thin book, and I think it came out 30 years ago, which simply says there's nothing wrong with being smart and there's nothing wrong with being elite. As he said, you want your doctor to be a perfectionist, don't you? Well, I think that's a, a, good, a good comment that, that Bill made. He says everybody's contribution is of value, but not everybody's contribution is worthwhile. And so I guess I'm an elitist. In that regard, I want my society to be run by people who know what they're doing. And Bill's book, In Defense of Elitism, uh, very much expressed that to me a long time ago. Excellent. I'll be sure to put some links to those as well so people can check those out if they're interested. And lastly, before we wrap up, I know you've obviously just finished this book. It's going to be coming out soon. But what other projects do you have lined up next? One of the reasons I'm so happy to speak to you, Jonathan, is because it gives me a break from writing the book I'm working on now. You know, writers love to do everything but write. <laughs> I'm working on, on one now about a major film franchise that I'm not talking about at the moment because I still have a few things I want to square away before the word gets around. And a few that are in the back of my mind. I would love to write a book where I contrast biographical films with the actual life of the person that they're supposed to be telling accurately because there's such a divergence between what goes on on the screen and what went on in the person's life. That's one of those books I'll never get to write. 
there are some other ones that I have in my in my mind. Um, but you know, you only write what they let you write if you're a writer who writes for a living, and I'm one of those people. So I'm very lucky to have been written the books that I've written, something like 28 or 30 of them now. I've actually lost track. Not all of them have made money, but a lot of them have been really happy experiences for me, and I hope I can keep that up. And I, I thank you for for talking to me and for having interest in the one that I've got coming out now. For sure. And and thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciated you taking the time to speak with me and for sharing the stories and information about Scarface in the book. Thank you for being so well informed and for finally getting a darn computer thing to work. Thank you again to my guest today, Nat Segaloff. His newest book, Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface, is out October 24th. And I'll have a link to where you can pre-order it in the show notes, along with links to the movies and books mentioned throughout the interview. The Oscar Project Podcast is written and produced by me, Jonathan Etreberg, with editing assistance from Joshua Etreberg. Please come back for my next author interview, where I will be speaking with Andrew DeGraff about his book, Cinemaps, an atlas of 35 great movies. Until then, I hope to see you at the movies.